If you would turn in your New Testaments to Acts the second chapter, as we had in our scripture reading, and we will begin there in a moment. Acts chapter 2. We're so thankful for the presence of each one today, especially those of our number who are visiting. We want you to know how encouraged we are by your presence and that you're an honored guest, and we'd love to have you back at any other opportunity you might have. And we want to extend an invitation to you to ask us questions about what we do here and what we've taught and what we will teach, and an extended invitation to study with us. We want to do all things in accordance with the will of the Lord Jesus, and we are those who are seeking to walk by faith and do that by the Bible, and we'd love to be able to talk to you about the will of God and to be in unity together in that regard. So we always extend an invitation to you and would love for you to take advantage of that. This lesson this morning has to do with some fundamental principles. I want everyone here to be aware of some of these things that we're going to investigate. Perhaps you're visiting with us and you're not a member of the Lord's Church, and you believe that you're saved, and you've heard some things that differ from what you have believed here this morning, and want you to have an open heart and invite you to study the Scriptures with us as we consider the will of God. And Maybe you are here regularly and you know what the Bible says about salvation and perhaps you've been delaying that. Maybe you have some questions about that. I hope that you pay attention to the will of God this morning and hopefully you have an open heart in approaching this study. There are countless stories that can be told, true stories, historical events that have occurred, some on a very broad scale and that many, many people know about, some less people know about, that exhibit very courageous actions taken by individuals and groups to get themselves out of sticky and mortal situations, mortal danger, and they go to tremendous lengths to save themselves. It's incredible what we are willing to do if we're pushed to the limit to save our own lives. Consider very briefly this account. In 2003, probably a story you're familiar with, a man named Aaron Ralston was hiking alone in Blue John Canyon in Canyonlands National Park in southeast Utah. He was descending into one of the remote and exceedingly narrow canyons. A boulder fell and trapped his right arm. For five days, he survived off of packed water and snacks, hoping someone would find him. The trouble was... He was in a remote spot and he hadn't told anyone where he was going. So realizing he may never be found and running out of supplies, he was forced to amputate his own arm by cutting through the bone using his multi-tool that included a knife. So he freed himself and began the seven-mile walk back to his truck. And during his journey, a family discovered him and alerted the authorities. Uh, During this ordeal, he lost over 40 pounds and somehow avoided bleeding to death. Let that set in for a moment. Like I said You've probably been familiar with this story. A movie was made out of it. I haven't seen it, so um, just take that and understand that. I'm not recommending it. I don't know what is in it. There's probably plenty of language. But that's an amazing story of a real event. A man who was pushed to the brink of death and was willing to cut through, probably not with a very sharp knife, certainly not a big knife, his own arm, and amputate him a limb of his own body to survive. 
And it's interesting when you think about that. And, and like I said, there's many stories, and I'm sure that if we were pushed to such extremities that we would be willing and able, even though we can't fathom it now, to do something like that to save our own lives. Some of us might just die. I probably would be that person. But I think that there's plenty of evidence to show the, the capacity of the human will to survive, and it's impressive. But James, in James 4 and verse 14, says, Your life is but a vapor. It appears for a little while and vanishes away. That's what Aaron Ralston was so intent on saving. That's what led him to do what he did. He was that concerned with what is but a vapor. What about the spiritual man? In Acts the second chapter, after preaching the first gospel sermon that is recorded for us, the other apostles as well, testifying of Jesus, who is the Christ, that He is the Son of God, and the fact that He had died for the sins of mankind, the people there asked what they must do. So Peter told them, we'll be visiting that in a little bit in this lesson. But in verse 40 of Acts chapter 2, the American Standard Version says, With many other words he testified and exhorted them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. Depending on your translation, it might be, Be saved from this crooked and perverse generation. You think about the urgency of that and the power behind those words. Save yourselves. There is a lost generation that is ungodly, that is opposed to this Christ and they're down the path to destruction, you save yourselves from succumbing to the same fate that they all will be subject to. Be impressed with the fact that he said with many other words he exhorted them. This was just a condensed version of the sermon that he preached. There were countless words that he spoke among those people inspired of God, and he testified. This was not senseless. This was not without evidence. It was based in a great deal of evidence, and it was very reasonable to believe and for them to obey. So he he exhorted them. He urged them. This was a very important thing, something that perhaps they they failed in the majority to comprehend just how urgent it was, but 3,000 souls knew how urgent it was. It was because of the great exhortation of the apostle. He said, save yourselves. Yes, it is certainly a passive thought that we are being saved. Be saved is something that you allow something to be done to you. But make no mistake about it, there are conditions that we must meet. We have to save ourselves in a very real sense. We need to make sure that we are living for eternity and that we are accepting the gift of salvation in the Son of, Son of God. Consider firstly that in order to save yourself, you need to undergo elective spiritual heart surgery This is not something that someone can rush you to the hospital for. It's not something that people can take you of their own accord. You have to be willing to go to this surgery. You have to be willing to to do what it takes in order for God to be able to save you. In Ezekiel, the 36th chapter, there's a discussion in prophecy about the return of the children of Israel, but there's something far greater that is in the mind of the prophet and in the mind of God. And it is the spiritual return of all who are lost to their shepherd of their souls. And it has a great deal to do with the heart. And make no mistake about it, we're not talking about the physical heart, of course. This is a spiritual heart that we're under consideration here, and it needs indeed changing. A heart transplant would be a better way of describing this. You notice the problem in Ezekiel chapter 36 and in verse 20 or verse 16. 
Speaking of the state of Israel at this time of Judah, they're in Babylonian captivity. It says, Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying in Ezekiel 36, 16, Son of man, when the house of Israel dwelt in their own land, they defiled it by their own ways and deeds. To me, their way was like the uncleanness of a woman in her customary impurity. Therefore, I poured out my fury on them for the blood that they had shed on the land and for their idols with which they had defiled it. These were people who were led out of captivity in Egypt and they were given a law on Mount Sinai, a law to separate them from the rest of the world, to sanctify them, to make them holy, to make them special. And it was only by adhering to that law that they would be different from the whole sinful world and a world full of idolatry. And that was not something that could become true except for their agreement to it. And in Exodus chapter 19, they agreed to it. They agreed to do whatever it is the Lord would give them to do in that law, but they had gone back on their word. And the heart was the main problem. They did not have the heart to receive that law and to do it and to be sanctified by it. And we shouldn't make the mistake of thinking that that law was too much for them to do. Certainly there needed to be a sacrifice for their sins, for no man has lived a sinless life save Jesus, the Son of God. But He did not give them a law that was too much for them to submit to and keep. The Pharisees did that as they added to the law and went beyond the inspired Scripture. But this law given on Mount Sinai, they could keep it, and that's why God gave it to them. He expected them to keep it. The reason they failed so miserably and on such a broad and grand scale is because of their heart. He continues to explain what he did. I scattered them, Exodus 30, or Ezekiel 36, 19. I scattered them among the nations, and they were dispersed throughout the countries. I judged them according to their ways and their deeds. When they came to the nations, wherever they went, they profaned my holy name. When they said of them, these are the people of the Lord, and yet they have gone out of his land. But I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations, wherever they went. Understand that there are two ways here in which they profane the Lord's name wherever they went. The first is the fact that their God is the all-powerful God. And what the idols saw and they're being led into captivity is that the God of the Israelites is weak and it profaned his name. It was their fault, his decision to take them into captivity, to let them go, to be captured and taken into another land. Make no mistake about that but it was based on their unfaithfulness and his faithfulness to the promise he made them about that consequence early in their history. But because they're in another nation as captives and slaves, as foreigners, as pilgrims, God is profane. Secondly, when they went there, they continued in their sinful ways. There's a reason not every single Israelite returned when God blessed them with the ability to return. A lot of them didn't want to. There was a heart problem even as they were disciplined and sent into another nation. And so it's not just that their God appears weak, but they're not even following their God to any degree anymore. And this is why Jehovah says, I have concern for my holy name. So notice what he, what he does about that in verse 23. He says, I will sanctify my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. And the nation shall know that I am the Lord, says the Lord God. Notice when I am hallowed in you before their eyes. So you have this lack of reverence leading to all forms of disobedience, even idolatry. They're led into captivity. And the people see that they're not so different than what they are. And God's name is profane. 
Now, God's plan is to now be hallowed in their eyes before the nations. How does that happen? That was the plan from the very beginning, and it didn't happen. And it wasn't God's fault, and it wasn't God's problem. It was a heart problem within the people. And so if this was ever to be rectified, it would start not with the change of that law. It would be the same law they would have coming in here. Physically, it would look to a new law, as we'll see in a moment, spiritually. But it had to do with their heart. Notice in verse 36 of Ezekiel 36, verse 26 rather. He said, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put in you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. Then you shall dwell in the land that I gave your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. In our discussion in class this morning about discipleship, we noted that it wasn't just the knowledge of the law, some intellectual activity that makes us disciples but our devotion to the lawgiver, our imitation of his very being and character. That's what he describes here. You need a new heart so that not just you can know my will because you knew it, you just didn't follow it. You need a new heart so that my spirit can inhabit you, animate you to do my will. We'll talk a little bit about what that means a little more in a moment. But notice in Ezekiel 37, another probably familiar passage to us, which looks to the same prophecy, not not simply of this physical return of a remnant, but more importantly, to this time of the messianic kingdom where there would be a spiritual restoration and the salvation of souls. And he speaks about a valley of dry bones and breathing into them and, and they having the flesh come upon them and then having life within them. And he applies it in verse 11 of Ezekiel 37. He said to me, son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. They indeed say our bones are dry, our hope is lost, and we ourselves are cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, thus says the Lord God, Behold, O my people, I will open your graves and cause you to come up from your graves and bring you into the land of Egypt, Israel. You shall know that I am the Lord when I have opened your graves, O my people, and brought you up from your graves. I will put my spirit in you. And you shall live, and I will place you in your own land, and you shall know that I, the Lord, have spoken it and performed it, says the Lord. He goes on to speak about two sticks that would come together, and and so representing Ephraim and, and Judah, they would no longer be a divided kingdom, but united. But notice in verse 24 what they're united under, or who. David, my servant, shall be king over them, and they shall all have one shepherd, and they shall also walk in my judgments and observe my statutes and do them. In John 10, Jesus says, I'm the shepherd. And so it's speaking of this messianic kingdom and a change in order and and the reception of the Spirit of God to the salvation of souls, a spiritual deliverance and vitality that is expressed here in Ezekiel 36 and in Ezekiel 37. But remember in verse 26 of the previous chapter, he says the, the way that that's going to happen is that you've got to have a new heart. You've got to have a complete change. And God says, I'll do that for you. But notice in Ezekiel 18 what he says. And this goes to the point of an elective spiritual heart surgery. God does not do this for everyone who is unwilling. God does this for those who are willing. Notice in Ezekiel 18 and in verse 30. It says, Therefore I will judge you, O house of Israel, everyone according to his ways, says the Lord. Repent and turn from all your transgressions, so that iniquity will not be your ruin. Cast away from you all the transgressions which you have committed, and get yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. 
Why should you die, O house of Israel? God says, in order for my name to be hallowed, in order for you to to receive the salvation I'm talking about, you need a new heart and I'm going to give it to you. But he said back in chapter 18, and it harmonizes that you've got to get yourselves a new heart. This is why Peter said, save yourselves from this perverse generation. Are you willing and do you desire to be changed? I think we can understand this with the parallel of Jeremiah's prophecy in Jeremiah chapter 31, another place of Scripture that we're very familiar with. I want us to notice in Jeremiah 31, beginning in verse 33, he says, This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. I want to tell you that the law of Moses was intended to be written on the heart. But it wasn't. And and it's not God's fault. It's the people's fault. And here's part of the problem. Notice verse 34. With this new covenant, he says, No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. Notice the reason. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. Now, under the law of Moses, you're born a Jew. You are a part of that covenant. You don't know God. You certainly don't know His law, but you are a Jew nonetheless, and you are a part of the covenant people. You must be circumcised as a male on the eighth day. You're part of that covenant. You must keep the covenant. You don't know God. People have to teach you. You will, but you have to be taught. If you're a part of this new covenant, you are taking advantage of the offer of grace. It's not because you're born into it. It's not because you don't know God, but you have learned, changed your will accordingly and obey. That's the point. And so when he says in verse 33, I'll put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts, it goes right back to Ezekiel chapter 36. And the point is when he puts his spirit within us is that he's writing his law on our hearts. Notice in Ezekiel 37, the point in verses 4 and 5 of that particular part of the prophecy, which speaks about the dry bones. Again, he said to me, prophesy to these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, surely I will cause breath to enter into you and you shall live. Prophesy the word of the Lord, breath will enter you and you shall live. And notice in verse 14, I will put my spirit in you and you shall live. And so when he's talking about a new heart to receive the Spirit of God, he's talking about a new heart to receive the Word of God to the salvation of their souls. You understand that the gospel of Christ is the power of God to salvation, but it cannot save the heart that is unwilling to receive it. And when we're speaking of the heart, we're speaking of, as I alluded to in class as well, the intellect, the will, and the emotions. Are you willing to put in the work to know it? When you know it, are you affected by the change in will? Are you willing to submit to it? Are you driven by its promises? That's what we're talking about here. If you're going to be saved, you've got to change your heart. In John chapter 1, we read of the ministry of John the Baptist, and they're asking him who he is, and what he says and who he actually is points a lot to this fact of a heart change. They said, who are you in John 1 and verse 22 that we may give an answer to those who sent us? What do you say about yourself? So he quotes from Isaiah chapter 40, which we'll read in a moment. He says, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. 
when a king would travel. They would send people out in front of them to make sure the path is straight. There's no dangers. It's going to be a smooth trip. And so John is this person for Jesus, for the Christ. He is making straight the way of the Lord, but in a spiritual sense. And so in Isaiah chapter 40, what he quotes from, we read a little further and we can kind of see some of that imagery. He's the voice in the wilderness, Isaiah 40 and verse 3, saying, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Notice verse 4 of Isaiah 40. Every valley shall be exalted, every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight and the rough places smooth. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed. That's in Jesus. And all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. He's preparing people to receive the Son of God, the Messiah. And the Son of God appeals to the heart and rules in the heart. He's preparing their hearts for the word of the Lord. When he speaks about these things like a valley that is exalted, you think about things perhaps like sin being corrected or, or a mountain brought low, pride being humbled. You think about all of these kinds of things, sorrow and lowliness lifted up, doubts settled. He's preparing hearts to receive the word of the Lord. This is why Malachi put it this way in Malachi chapter 4 and verses 5 and 6. We read about how he is turning the hearts of the fathers to the children and the children to the fathers. And this is what is said to Zacharias, John the Baptist's father in Luke chapter 1. That's what he'd do. And turn them back to the old paths, as Jeremiah put it in his prophecy. Their hearts have to be changed, though. Matthew, the 13th chapter, Jesus spoke of this when he explained his use of parables. He says, to you it has been given to know the, king, the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given and in Matthew chapter 13 and in verse 14, he quotes from Isaiah an explanation of this. Hearing you will hear and shall not understand. Seeing you will see and not perceive for the hearts of this people have grown dull. Their ears are hard of hearing and their eyes they have closed lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears lest they should understand with their hearts and turn so that I should heal them. To save yourself, you must first change your heart and be receptive to the will of God because even the will of God is not powerful enough to save those who don't want saving. Are you honest about your investigation of truth? Do you want to know? Are you biased? Have you set aside those preconceived notions? Do you want to be saved? Then save yourselves. And secondly, as we undergo that spiritual heart surgery, then we're able to respond to the message to put off the body of sin to submit to the gospel and allow God to wash those sins away, but also making that decision since sin is what separates us from Him in the first place, Isaiah 59 verse 2, that I'm dead to sin now. Baptism is not just some symbolic thing. The, the world will tell you it's an outward sign of an inward grace. Certainly there is symbolism involved. Jesus literally died, was buried, and was raised. And in baptism, we die, are buried, and are raised. But it is the point of our obedience, the faith that we have expressed in obedience, that that body of sin is put away. In 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 24, the Apostle Peter mentioned that Jesus himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we having died to sins might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. Yes, he had to die so that you could live, but you have to make the decision to die as well in order to live. One of the great paradoxes of the truth. Galatians 2 and verse 20, Paul put it this way, it is no longer I who live, I've been crucified with Christ. 
But Christ lives in me, a life which I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. He repeats that sentiment in chapter 5 and verse 24, saying those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with his passions and desires. And he says in chapter 6 of Galatians in verse 14, God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. We should understand the graphic language he's using there. He's not simply saying die to the world. He's not simply saying die to self. He uses the term crucified, which is the worst death imaginable, a shameful death, a slave's death. This is what Jesus was subjected to, and this is what he calls us to subject ourselves to. The world is shameful to us, and we express that through our obedience to the gospel. Notice in Colossians, the second chapter, when this occurs as we consider that language furthermore and the power of God to save us. In Colossians chapter 2, as we've recently studied in verse 11, the Apostle Paul demonstrates in part why in Him you are complete, because in Him, he says, you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off of the body of sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised with Him through faith in the working of God who raised Him from the dead, And you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he is made alive together with him, having forgiven you all your trespasses. Firstly, understand that circumcision was a sign of the covenant for the Jews. And so when we're circumcised with a circumcision without hands, not in the flesh, but in the spirit, we become God's people. We're identified with him and given all the promises that his covenant people are given. But in circumcision, there is a cutting off of something and a casting away of something. You're getting rid of a part of yourself. And that's exactly the point here. In baptism, you are buried with Christ and raised in newness of life. And you've cast away that old self. By the grace of God, He's removed the sins from your person. And and by your submission to His grace in the gospel, you are determining not to live that way any longer. And I would have you understand that this is not an outward sign of an inward grace. Baptism is where it takes place. Baptism is not something that happens after you've put off that body of sins and are made new in Christ. Baptism is where it happens. Notice the language in Romans, the sixth chapter in verse three. In Romans six and in verse three, he's reminding them of their baptism and stressing the point that you have cast off that old man and you're to live righteousness. But baptism expresses that. It says, In verse 3 of Romans 6, Do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ were baptized into His death? Therefore we were buried with Him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Understand the language there. He says, When you were baptized is when you were then raised from the dead to walk in newness of life. It didn't happen before it. That's false teaching that the world would have you believe. In baptism, by God's grace, he says it's faith in the working of God. We just read in Colossians chapter 2 and in verse 12. He says, knowing this in verse 6, our old man was crucified with him that the body of sin might be done away with so that we should no longer be slaves of sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. Save yourselves. Put off that body of sins of the flesh and walk in newness of life. This is what the Apostle Peter told them in Acts 2, when they said, Men and brethren, what must we do? He said in verse 38, Repent 
And let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. It says in verse 41, after he said, Be saved from this perverse generation, those who gladly received his word were baptized. And that day about 3,000 souls were added to him. You notice that word gladly? That's where the heart change comes into place. You'll not submit to this, not totally, unless you receive it gladly. It is indeed the product of grace that God has revealed to us that he who believes and is baptized will be saved. And it's not our work. It's a work of God. It's something he's doing for us. Yes, he says, save yourselves, be saved, but he is saving us in baptism. Don't let anyone fool you to think otherwise. It is of necessity that we put off the body of sins in baptism. And as Romans 6 and verse 4 indicated, we raise to walk in newness of life, so salvation doesn't end there. He, he says, save yourselves, and certainly he meant be saved from your sins at this point by being baptized into Christ for the remission of your sins, rising up to walk in newness of life. But I want to tell you, they have then salvation in the form of a promise because the scriptures replete with examples of apostasy and warnings of it. And so every single day we live to save ourselves by submitting to the grace of God. We implore Jesus to, 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 to do what He only can do and save us from our sins. But we've got to know what that process is. You see, it's a new life, and a new life needs sustenance. A new life needs growth. Jesus, in John chapter 3, referred to this in His discussion with Nicodemus as a new birth. He said in John 3 and verse 3, Most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Born again. No wonder Nicodemus was confused. He's one who's already been born and he's thinking about entering the kingdom. He's associating it in a physical way with the physical nation of Israel. And he's thinking, how in the world can I be born a Jew again when I've already been born a Jew? But this born again is meant to be puzzling in our minds that are contained in this physical reality. That's, that's an impossibility to be born again. Nobody has ever done that, and nobody can expect anyone else to do that. He's speaking of spiritual birth. So he says in verse 5, Most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. And that's the same birth we talked about just a minute ago. Baptism is that birth. Romans 6 and verse 4. When you are baptized, you are raised to walk in newness of life. You're a newborn babe in Christ then. But you must continue to save yourselves, to submit to what God is offering of salvation in the gospel. So Jesus goes on to describe the spiritual birth in verse 6, and He shows that it has effects. You start seeing the reality. You go in the water, come out of the water. No one can tell a difference except you're wet now. But as you proceed forth, as you put off the body of sins... There is a drastic change. He explains it this way. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Don't marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Notice verse 8. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. He's saying when you're born of water in the Spirit, you look the same. You sound the same as far as your voice is concerned. Very little is different physically, but people know you're different. You see that? 
You couldn't tell just by seeing you walk down the street, but by seeing you live your life now, now I understand. We can't see the wind. When we say, I see the wind outside, we're not telling the truth. We are seeing the effects of the wind. Wind can't be seen. That's important. You are raised to walk in newness of life, and that new life is a spiritual life. It's called a new birth in 1 Peter 1 and verse 23. You're born not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible through the Word of God which lives and abides forever. I want to tell you, that if it is indeed a spiritual birth that cannot simply be seen by the physical eye, yet its effects are seen, and it's a spiritual birth by the Word of God, then the way you continue toward your salvation is by consuming the spiritual sustenance of the Word of God. In 1 Peter chapter 2, he continues that thought, you're born of the Word. You are born again to a living hope, he had said. And he says, therefore, of 1 Peter chapter 2, laying aside all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking. You have put off that body of sins. You're walking in newness of life, but the way you finally put everything off and you sever all of those rotting things on your spiritual person is as newborn babes, you desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby. And it's a wonder why there are Christians, period, much less many Christians, because I think it's a problem and it'll always be a problem that there are members of the church who don't take it seriously like they should. But it's a wonder that they do not crave this spiritual milk because of what he says next, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. Are you glad that your sins were washed away, that you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands? You're a part of the covenant people of God, his family, and that you are begotten again to a living hope, he says in chapter 1 and verse 3. Is that good for you? Do you thank God for it? Why wouldn't you continue to drink from the life-giving stream that gave you life in the first place? Your salvation isn't finished. All of us have to continue to consume this spiritual sustenance. In John chapter 15, we see of Jesus speaking about those abiding in Him, being His disciples, and, and what that means. This new life is one that is bearing fruit for God, but any fruit-bearing tree must have water, it must have minerals, it must have sun, it must have sustenance. And that's the point Jesus makes in John chapter 15. Save yourselves by working out your own salvation, obeying the will of the Lord, bearing that fruit, but you can't do it without consuming what God is offering you. He says in John 15 and verse 1, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. He tells his apostles, you are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. He progresses through that. Notice in verse 6, he says, if anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and withered and, and gathered them and throws them into the fire and they are burned. How many farmers you know that'll just keep a, a tree around or a plant around, which is just taking up space and, and soaking in that, that nutrition and not producing any kind of fruit, they cut it out and they burn it. They get rid of it. That's what Jesus is saying. And so we need to be concerned with bearing fruit, but we can't be bearing fruit and be concerned with it truly and totally unless we know where the sustenance is that leads to that fruit bearing. So notice what he said in verse 2. Every branch that bears fruit he prunes that it may bear more fruit. And then he tells them you're already clean because of the word I've spoken to you. The word prunes in verse 2 is kathairo. It means to cleanse or to be pruned. 
The word for clean in verse 3 is actually the root of what we read in verse 2, katharos, and it means the same thing, to be clean or pruned. And you notice there, you're already clean, you're already pruned because of the word I've spoken to you. It is the word of God that leads to our fruit bearing. You cannot stifle the word of God by putting it on a shelf and allowing it to collect dust if you wish to be saved. And if you take the words, save yourself seriously, you'll be consuming this every single day. And Psalm 1, that blessed man is the one who meditates in the law of the Lord day and night. And it describes him there as a tree that is planted by the rivers of water, whose leaf does not wither, whatever he does will prosper, and he bears forth fruit in its own season. As a Christian, that should be our entire desire, to have a stability to be planted, to have constant sustenance being planted by water. And therefore, every time, every season, the Lord expects for you to bear some sort of fruit in His name. We are able to bear it. It won't happen unless we delight in the law of the Lord and meditate on it day and night. Your soul depends upon that life-giving water. This is how Jesus described it in John chapter 4. You remember the words that He spoke to the Samaritan woman at Jacob's well when, when He asked her for a drink, give me a drink. And she was confused by this, of course, because he's a Jew and Jews and Samaritans have no dealings with each other. But in verse 10 of John 4, he said, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. He says, the one who drinks of this water, verse 13, the physical water thirsts again. Whatever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst, but the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. He uses similar language in John 7 of the same gospel. John 7 in verse 37, he says, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And he says, He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But notice the explanation by John. This he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive, for the Holy Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. That takes us all the way back to Ezekiel 36 and 37. This he speaks concerning the Spirit who will reveal the words of life through primarily the apostles' doctrine. These inspired men would teach all others. And when people drink in that life-giving stream, they overflow with it and tell others about it. That's, that's what we're doing here. We must be consuming this spiritual sustenance. In John 6, he talked about it as bread. I am the bread of life. You ate the manna, or your, your fathers did, and they're dead, but... Whoever eats this bread will live. He says in verse 51 of John 6, I am that living bread and I came down from heaven. He who eats of this bread will live forever. The bread that I give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. This isn't talking about the Lord's Supper. Some make that mistake. The Jews didn't know what he was talking about, but notice what he goes down to equate it with in verse 63. It is the spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are the spirit and they are life. And this is why Simon answered in this very context, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. If we're not consuming the word, then we're not saving ourselves. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word which proceeds forth from the mouth of God. And lastly, certainly not least, when Peter beckons them to save themselves, that was a loaded statement. And some of that which is included in it is cutting off anything whatsoever. We talked about it in class. Deny yourself, not 
deny yourself something, deny yourself to, to the point where I'm willing to cut off anything, sin, liberty, whatever it may be, that would possibly jeopardize my salvation. Save yourselves is a continuing thing until you are finally saved. In Hebrews 12 and verse 15, the Hebrew writer tells us to look carefully lest anyone fall short of the grace of God. In 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 8, we're told that the devil walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And so if that's the case, we are hyper aware of everything, not just what the Bible labels as sin, but everything in our life. We're hyper aware of what it's doing, how it's affecting us, what the warnings are that are blaring toward us and willing to forgo anything if it means the salvation of our souls. This is why Paul said in Romans 13 and verse 14, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lust. No provision. He's not saying make sure you never, you never sin in these ways. He's saying don't even provide for the sin in the first place. It's vitally important. This is what James says about it in James 4 and verse 7. Submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. You know, Aaron Ralston, that man we talked about at the very beginning of the lesson, his life depended on him parting with his arm. How'd you like to live the rest of your life with one arm? There's plenty of people who do. Their life is far different, especially if that's not something you were born in that state and you've got to adapt in various ways. Well, his life was so precious to him that he was willing to part with a limb of his body. We should be able to part with anything to save our souls. This is the whole point of what Jesus said in Matthew, the fifth chapter, and in verse 27. In the Sermon on the Mount, he told the people there, Matthew 5 and verse 27, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So here's his application. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out, cast it from you, for it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. If your right hand causes you to sin, Cut it off and cast it from you, for it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. You know, someone says, yeah, but Jesus was using hyperbolic language. Well, obviously, but I want to tell you, he was serious about the literal application of that. The difference is eyeballs and hands don't cause people to sin. That's where the heart change comes in. And if we have that heart change, then maybe it's not our eye that's causing us to sin, but it's what we're always watching of our own accord. Maybe it's not our ear that's causing us to sin, but it's what we always turn on to listen to. Maybe it's not our hand that causes us to sin, but it's the places we go and the activities we engage in that leads down that path that very could well end up in sin. And we need to cast those things from us. Jesus knows eyeballs and hands aren't inherently sinful. They're mere instruments cut off all the sources that would plant that seed of temptation in your mind to go into sin. One brother very vividly noted that most of us have spent a long time learning how to be selfish and lustful. We should not expect the end of these things to come without trauma. Shrieks of anguish may arise from somewhere within us as in penitence we apply the gospel knife. 
Discipleship takes sacrifice and endurance. And this is part of it. There is nothing that is so important that should lead you to lose your soul. Jesus was serious when He said what He said. Aaron Ralston understood it in a physical light. How much more so we who are sons of light understand it in the most lasting way eternally. We want you to be saved. Peter wants you to be saved. That's why it's recorded. Jesus wants you to be saved. Save yourselves from this perverse generation. But are you willing to do what it takes to be saved? God alone can save us. But the thing is, is He supplied every single thing that we knew we need. The only thing lacking is your willingness to receive the gift. But this is what it takes. If we can assist you in any way, we invite you to make that choice this morning to, to be baptized into Christ for the remission of your sins so you can rise to walk in newness of life, a part of God's family, one who has now for therefore an inheritance that is incorruptible and undefiled, reserved in heaven. It doesn't fade away. We want you to do that this morning. If you are a Christian and you have fallen short in some sense or fashion, maybe you just need encouragement. We're here for you as well. And the invitation is extended to you while we stand and sing the song that was selected.